Good morning, Redeemer Church. You know, unbelief is a reality among the people of God. It it just is. We, We are tempted to disbelieve the promises and the person of God frequently, but especially when we're going through difficult circumstances, especially when we can't see a logical good ending to the the difficulty we're going through. And as we were singing the Lord's Prayer, the line that just struck my heart so clearly and so powerfully was when we said, we know that you love us, you gave us your Son. Because, you know, we're, we're tempted to believe that God doesn't love us when our, when our issue doesn't get resolved the way that we want it to get resolved. Or our, our problem um, doesn't find a solution in the manner that we want that solution to be found. Or um, our family uh, problem, or our addiction problem, or our whatever problem doesn't get resolved exactly the way we want it. We're tempted to disbelieve God, but at the root we've got to see that God loves us so much that He gave us His Son. That is testimony of His love for us. That is testimony of His affection for us. So no matter what our circumstances are, at the root of everything, we've got to see the love of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll always be reminded that He loves us. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to continue our study in the book of First and Second Samuel. The title of the series is called Kingdom Through Chaos and Crisis. Kingdom through chaos and crisis. I want to begin by saying that you and I should never underestimate the capacity of the human heart to manipulate circumstances and situations for selfish purposes. You and I have an incredible capacity to manipulate people, to manipulate circumstances in order to get what we want. Let me give you just an example. Um, Pretend that I am uh, 15 years old, and I'm three months away from turning 16, and I have my driver's permit. And I go to public school every day, and I have not been promised a car I've not been willed a car. Nobody's told me that I'm going to get a car. As a matter of fact, there's this, there's this kind of agreement that I'll get a car when I'm a senior, but not as a 10th grader uh, that turns 16. But the, the, as each day approaches my 16th birthday, I get more and more antsy and excited about the possibility of getting a car, such that I start putting posters of cars in my room, and I get car magazines that I read, and I, I make little hints to my parents about cars, and we'll be eating at the dinner table at night, and, and there'll be, you know, just maybe salad on, on the table, and, and that color green, I'll say, you know, Jim has a green car that's the very same color as this salad, um, but I just pop in little hints here and there, and then I decide, you know what, I'm going to make a logical argument for a car. I'm going to make a logical argument for a car to my parents. And, 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 and I'll say something like, you know, mom and dad, it would be a lot more efficient 
if you guys got me a car because, Mom, you have to take me all the way to school every morning. Dad, you have to pick me up. My, uh, our grand- my grandparents have to come by and pick me up after practice, and they have to leave their house. It's dangerous on the road. Um, we would just be a lot more efficient as a family. We could save time for you guys, save money for us all in the long run. Uh, plus, it could just be a wonderful testimony. I mean, think about how clean I could keep the car and how much of a testimony that would be of the excellence of God. Um, and, and just think about the possibilities of evangelism as I pick up hitchhikers on the road and, and have a captivated audience where I could share the gospel with them in my new car. And you know, I could just lift all these reasons for the reason to have a new car. And my parents begin to think, well, maybe Ryan should, maybe Ryan should get a new car. This is, this is maybe really a good thing. But all the while, the thing that I'm not mentioning is that I really want a car because all the cool kids have cars. I really want a car because there's a certain young lady that I want to ask out on a date, and I don't think there's any way possible that she's going to go out with me without me having my own car. I really want a car because I want a, I want a parking spot at the high school, like all the kids have a parking spot. I really want a car because I want freedom, I want independence, I want a reputation, I want status. But I don't say any of that stuff to my parents. So let me ask this question. Is it wrong for a 16-year-old boy to want a car? No, it's not wrong. Is it wrong for a 16-year-old boy to actually have a car? Well, according to the state of Alabama, it's not wrong. It's actually legal. But is it wrong for a 16-year-old boy to want a car, to give logical reasons to appeal for a car, but all the while manipulating the situation to get something that he is being secretive and deceptive about. That's wrong. Now, that is the capacity that you and I have to manipulate circumstances, to manipulate situations, and to manipulate people to get what we want. And that's exactly what the people of Israel were doing in, in uh, 3,000 years ago. And it's exactly what you and I do today. If you look down at chapter 8, I've titled this, this chapter, We Want What We Want. And I've titled it that way because in our fallen nature, we have a strong tendency to stop at nothing to get everything that we want. And regardless of what the Lord has said, regardless of what the Lord is doing, and no matter uh, how bad it is for us, we want what we want. And let me just quickly set the context for you. Two weeks ago, we looked at the kidnapping of God, where the Philistines attack Israel. Israel loses 4,000 soldiers that day, and and instead of praying, instead of consulting the Lord for wisdom, instead of worshiping Him, they decide to manipulate God, and they take the ark into the battle camp, and they basically say, there's no way we can lose now because we've got God with us, and He's not going to risk His reputation. Well, they were were sadly mistaken, right? Because then they go out and lose 30,000 soldiers. And um, their, their, whole, their whole nation unravels before them. But then um, Samuel leads repentance in the land. They bow down before God. They experience revival. And they see that if you pray and you repent and you seek the glory of God and the will of God, that God will honor the prayers and the humility of His people. And we saw that last week as we saw uh, Ebenezer, the stone of help being raised, saying the Lord is our deliverer. He is our Savior. Essentially, He is our King. That's where we are. But now if you look down at chapter 8, what you find, 
is that Samuel has now gotten old. He's at the end of his life, and so what does he do? He, he makes his sons judges. He makes so uh, Joel and Abijah judges, and, and they're in Beersheba. Now, it's about 50 miles south of, of where Samuel is. And the problem with him making his sons judges is that they didn't walk in the same way that he walked. Now, one thing that we want to make clear that the text does not say. The text doesn't say that Samuel um, mistreated them, or that he neglected them, or he didn't teach them the Bible, or he didn't train them toward worship. It never says anything about that uh, regarding Samuel. It just says that his boys don't walk in the same ways. Now, it says that they are uh, manipulators, essentially. They are deceivers. They're out for their own good. They are crooks, essentially. And how much Samuel knew about that, we don't exactly know. But I just want to just stop and let's just make this one observation. In the first eight chapters of the book of Samuel, we see two leaders who have two sons apiece. And both of those leaders put their sons in leadership over the people of God, and both of those sets of sons abuse the people of God. I believe that God is trying to teach us something here. First of all, He's trying to teach spiritual leaders that you need to make sure that you spend time with your children. You need to train them and love them. Don't neglect them and care for them and pray for them and don't dare promote them within the church of Jesus Christ if they don't love Jesus Christ. Okay, But I think there's a secondary application. If you're a parent, you don't need to neglect your child's understanding of God and relationship to God, but you need to pray fervently for them. You need to care for them. You need to train them. You need to love them. And you don't need to, to just continue to move them along in this, in this whole thing called church without investigating the authenticity of their, of their faith. Nevertheless, we, we see that, that Samuel promoted them. And so, look at verse 5. The elders of Israel actually come to Samuel. They're united. They're harmonious. They've come from different towns and different villages and they approach Samuel. And, and, and I love this in the English because they say, behold, you're old. Behold, you're old. You know, it's nothing like just having to face the facts here, Samuel. Uh, we just feel like that you could go to sleep tonight and not wake up next morning. And none of us would be surprised about it. You're just an old guy. And that makes us nervous because your sons don't walk in your ways. So this is what we want you to do. We want you to appoint a king to be judge over us. Now, one Bible study principle is that when you observe what a text says, you also want to observe the flip side. What does it not say? And if you look down at verse 5, the text doesn't say that Israel sought the Lord's wisdom in prayer. Israel sought the Lord's wisdom in fasting. Israel united together and humbled themselves before the mighty hand of God and said, and said, Lord, we know You've delivered us in the past. You brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You carried us through the Red Sea. You fed us manna day after day. You've provided judges and leaders and persons who have spoke the Word of God and, and judged through the Word of God and led us out of all kinds of problems. We humble ourselves before You now and recognize that we have we have an issue at hand and we want to seek your wisdom for it. Does, that, does it say anything like that in verse 5? No, no. It just says you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. 
And so appoint us a king to judge us. Appoint us a king to judge us. Just think, um, think how offensive that would be to Samuel. Uh, this, this has been a faithful man his entire life to bring justice and righteousness and mercy and grace and love to the people of Israel. And they're saying, we, just, we want a king to judge over us. It's a slap in Samuel's face. But here we have the essence of why they really want a king. They want to be what? Like all the nations. They want to be like all the nations. And the, the, the truthfulness of their desire comes out when they say, like all the nations. And what is the, what is the kingship like all the nations? A kingship like all the nations is the rule of one man over the entirety of a nation. He provides a strong, stable type of government. It's predictable. Everybody looks to him for decisions. Everybody looks to him for leadership. And he goes out and fights the battles. He leads in battle for them. And they see, whether it be the Amorites or the, the, all of the Canaanites who have this kind of structure of government, and they envy what the world has. They envy the way that things are done in other nations. And this is a problem. And so in verse 6, it says the thing displeased Samuel. Well, it, it means that Samuel hated what they said. He, he hated what they said. And, and, so, and so because of his displeasure, and because of his loathing for their, of, of their request, what does Samuel do? What does he do? He prays. He prays. I, I appreciate that that was inserted in there. I'm sure that that's exactly what happened. And I think that we see the contrast here. They, they want a king like all the nations, and so they just want to usurp the authority of God and the means God has chosen to carry about His ways. But instead, uh, Samuel actually prays. And church, I'll just I'll say this. You and I need to learn the discipline that when things don't go our way, when a circumstance happens that is unfavorable toward us, or we're confused, we need to learn the discipline of praying immediately. You and I are, are prone, we're tempted to pop off at the mouth. We're tempted to lash out. We're tempted to be so angry that we say and do things that we should not do. But I think we should observe that Samuel didn't lash out. He didn't pop off at the mouth. He didn't enter into some significant judgment of these people. He immediately hit his knees and bowed before the Lord and asked for his wisdom. And so they demand a king and Samuel prays the Lord. And let's just look at the instruction that the Lord gives to Samuel. He says, this is, this is really striking. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Wow, really? Now this is what his reasoning is. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. We call this kingdom through chaos and crisis. We call it kingdom through chaos and crisis not because the kingdom is about to start as soon as Samuel is going to tap Saul in the next couple of chapters. No, we call it kingdom through chaos and crisis because this has also been the kingdom of God. God is the king of Israel at this time. And he's saying they're rejecting my royalty. They're rejecting my authority. They're rejecting who I am and what I stand for in their lives. This is not simply we want this kind of a government. This is not simply we want this kind of structural organization within our people. No, this is us rejecting the authority and kingship of God over us so that we can have a mere man to be king over us. And that's why 
God puts it that way. Samuel, listen, I know you're offended. Samuel, I know you're struggling, and I know you're displeased with this, but realize it's not you they're rejecting, it's me they're rejecting. And so, what does he say? He says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. If you and I were to read Genesis 12 all the way through 1 Samuel chapter 8, you know what we would see? We would see a pattern. We would see a pattern of God saving and delivering and loving and Israel thanking God briefly, but then rebelling and rejecting God and His love and His mercy and His grace and His authority. We'd see it time and time and time and time again. And God says right here, that's all they've done for their history. And so, look at verse 9. He says, now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Obey their voice. In other words, let them have what they want. Just in case I don't say this later, I... I would say that the pattern, the pattern of, 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 of our own will, and even in, when we're in relationship with God, it goes something like this. We want what we want. God warns us against what we want. We demand what we want. God grants what we want. We get what we ask for. And then God still works the works of His kingdom, regardless of that. That's really the pattern. And that's what we're going to see here. And so, Samuel does exactly what God calls him to do, which is to warn the people about the king that they're looking for. And as he does so, you can look down at the, you can look down at the text. I want to make some observations about the text. When, Daniel, uh, when Samuel talks about the king... When he talks about the king, I want you to know that in this text overall, the king, the word king is mentioned ten times. The pronoun he, referring to the king, is mentioned seven times. The pronoun his is mentioned eleven times. The pronoun himself is mentioned once, so that there's a total of like 39 times it's referring to the king. And in this warning alone, Daniel, I mean Samuel continues to talk about the nature of what this king is going to be like, and what is he going to do? Six times he says he's going to take. He's going to take, 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 he's going to take. All the while juxtaposing the nature of God as king who gives, 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 and gives to you. And so just look down at verses 10 and following. And because what, what is it that he says? Listen, this is what the king's going to do. He's going to take your sons. You know, your beloved sons, the one who work your land, who live, on your, live in your house, and who are care, got a lot of vigor and, 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 and life about them. He's going to take them from you, and he's going to make them charioteers. He's going to make them horsemen. He's going to have them run before his chariots and also lead them. And then he's going to appoint for himself, that is not for you, but for himself, commanders of thousands and fifties. He's going to have some of them plow his ground and reap his harvest. He's going to have some of them make uh, tools for war. He's going to have some of them make equipment for his chariots. Not only is he going to take your sons from you, hey, your daughters aren't safe either. 
He's going to take your daughters from you, your precious daughters, and they're going to become cooks and bakers and perfumers. They're going to do all of His work and carry out His bidding. And then He's going to take the very best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, give them to His servants. In other words, He's saying, listen, I know that on your land, you've got this one spot that you love tilling up and you love planting your favorite your favorite fruits or your favorite vegetables because you know in that spot every year it seems to produce the juiciest and the ripest and the most uh, wonderful tasting fruits and vegetables. Listen, that's going to be the king's from now on. That'll be his. Then he says he'll take one-tenth. Not only is he going to take the best of what you've got, he's going to take the first tenth of, of your grain and your vineyards. And what is he going to do? He's going to give it to his officers and his servants because he requires officers and servants. And then he's going to take your male and female servants, the ones who labor for you, they're now going to labor for him. And he's going to take the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he's going to put them to his work. And he's going to take a tenth of your animals, your flocks. And then this is where it really gets, it's going to hit home, or it should have. And then you're going to become his, what? Slaves. You're going to become his slaves. The message that God is trying to give to Israel is that you want a king who battles for you, but what you're going to do is get a king who takes from you. That's what you're going to get. And I think God would say, this is the reality. Human kings have weaknesses. They have egos. They have sins. They carry with them selfishness. They carry with them all kinds of things that I don't have to carry along with me because I'm the sovereign God and King of the universe and you're exchanging what I give and what I provide for something that you think you want and in reality you're not going to get anything. You're going to have all this stuff taken from you. And he says, in that day, when you realize all of this, you will cry out because of your King whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Those are stinging words, but it didn't sting hard enough for Israel. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Uh, Just based on what the Scriptures already told us in Samuel, we can say that by refusing to obey the voice of Samuel, they were also refusing to obey the voice of who? God. Everything that Samuel said was the message from God. So they said, no. This is a warning that God has graciously given to Israel. This was like their chance to say, okay, now that you lay it out like that for us, Samuel, now that it gets really clear, and I know it's supposed to become sober in our mind and our heart about what kingdoms, what, what this kingship is really going to be like, you know what, we, um, we, we want to think twice. You know what, now that you've given us that warning, we're going to step back a little bit from what we're now demanding, and we're going to say, you know what, I think we'll just let God be our king. That was the, the, desired, that was the desired result. But they are so hard-hearted and so stiff-necked that they are willing to look God square in the face and say, no. Man. There shall be a king over us that we also may be, tell me again, the church, church, what what do they say? Like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us 
and fight our battles. If there is a theme verse, if there is a key verse in this whole chapter, it is this one right here. No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. I'm going to say, when, uh, when you tell God no, you're telling sin yes. Verse 21, when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel again, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So, early on this week, I thought that this sermon would be about God's kingdom. It would be about His kingship. It would be about kind of laying out the landscape of what the kings were going to be like in the future. Basically be kind of more like a a theological message about the kingdom of God. But the more I read it, Time and time and time again, I realized that if I did a message that was more general like that, then this text would not strike the blow that was intended to be struck right here. And this is, this is the big idea of the text. Now listen to me, church. I'm just going to read it to you. Rejecting God as king over your life is rooted in a heart of rebellion against God. Rejecting God as king over your life is rooted in a heart of rebellion against who He is, what He does, and how He works. That's what it is. And you and I, you and I, need not look like Ron said at Israel and say, can you believe that they were the way that they were? You and I need to see our story in the story of the people of Israel and we need to first ask the question, can I believe the way that I am. Yeah. And so I want to I want to just kind of um I want to give you some markers of what rebellion looks like uh here in this passage and in our own hearts, okay? So if you're kind of taking notes, I've just kind of put these little things in a pithy way, but I want us to think about this. Rebellion against God as king over your life looks first of all like discontentment with the provision of God. Discontentment with the provision of God. I have said it probably ten times over the last few years that um, contentment is erased from your life when you compare your life with other people's lives. All right? So comparison is the enemy of contentment. Yeah. All right? And so what, what Israel is doing is they are, instead of looking vertically and meditating on God's provision, meditating on God's protection of them and, and God's ways with them, they take their eyes off of God vertically and they look horizontally and they look at the people to their north and the people to their east and the people to their west and the people to their south and they look at these kings who are ruling over their nations and they say, 
We want what they have more than what God has provided for us. And the more they look away from God and look to other people, the more discontent they become. If that is not a description of me and you in our lives when we become discontent, I don't know what is. I'm going to tell you, when you remove the vertical meditation from your life, and you look horizontally to compare your life with other people's lives, I can guarantee you discontentment will set in. Because now you're meditating more on what other people have and what other people do and what other people carry about with, and you, um, you concern yourself less with what God has for you, God plans for you, and, and how God loves you directly. Um, discontentment is killing not only the church of Jesus Christ, but it's killing families. It is killing marriages. It is killing relationships with husband and wife and parents to kids and kids to parents. It's just nothing is ever enough. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever big enough. Nothing is ever exciting enough. Nothing is ever as intense enough. Nothing is ever as pleasurable enough. And so we've got to look beyond ourselves and what God has provided for us to get something that is better, bigger, more intense, more pleasurable because apparently God doesn't know what He's doing. Church, I just want to, I want to, I want to, I want to instruct you, instead of looking around at everybody else, instead of looking around at your peers, instead of looking around at what other people drive and what other people wear and what other people do and what other people go about carrying around with, look to God who is your provider. Look to God who is your protector. Look to God who is your great king. Because I can tell you, the world is not living for eternity. The world is living for here and now. All right? The world, real, the world should realize that they're having heaven on earth. All right? This is their heaven. All right? For you and I, this is the worst that it gets. Because in eternity, it's going to be forever and ever in his kingdom. And we're not only going to see the Lord as our king, but we're going to be like him. And so you and I need to be sober about this. The second thing that we need to understand about rebellion, there's a disregard for prayers to God. There's discontentment with the provision of God, and then there's disregard for prayers to God. Uh, I, I think I read a tweet or a Facebook post or something this week where one of my favorite scholars and, and pastors asked the question, um, how does a preacher best prepare for a sermon on Sunday? His answer, spend 20 hours in prayer. That's a lot of hours. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to confess to you guys, I don't spend 20 hours in prayer before uh, the Lord every week preparing for my sermon. But I want to tell you that that post had a significant impact on my heart because I realized that prayer is the means that God has, used, has chosen to use for us to get in line with His will, to get in line with His way, and then to find that He's going to carry out His perfect will for our lives through the prayers that we offer to Him and the meditation that we have. When you and I neglect prayer, we go down the road of irrationality and worldliness and emptiness. May Redeemer Church not be a church that neglects prayer. And I'll just take this opportunity to remind you that we meet at 9 o'clock 
every Sunday morning in the training center to pray. And I'd love for more of you to join us that we might seek the Lord together for His will for our lives and for our church. The third thing that we see in this passage that marks their rebellion against God as king is a disagreement with the plan of God. A disagreement with the plan of God. I call it a disagreement because they said no. No. We just disagree with with the warning. We disagree with your plan. We disagree with the way that God works. We feel like things would go better if we do it this more innovative way, this simpler way, this, this way that has greater structure and greater, uh, greater uh, what's the word, symmetry. You, you, you see, guys, what is interesting and ironic about this is that they look at the sons of Samuel and say, Samuel's sons can't get it done, and so we've got to find a new way. And the new way that they propose is a kingship that is going to produce a hereditary lineage of of royalty time and time again. And so what they're asking for is to get rid of what we're doing in order to get something that is going to be more condemning than what we already have. So we just don't like the way that God is doing it. We don't like the plan that He's using. And and, and folks, let's let's just be honest. The reason that Israel did not like it that much is because they didn't have a king that they could see, that they could touch, that they could feel, that they could hear. They didn't have a king who could literally, physically walk out in front of them that they could bow down to or follow into war. And all the other nations had that kind of king. And they just said, honestly, we just don't like the surprise nature of your kingship. We don't like the the faith nature of it. It's just, it requires too much trust. It requires too much faith. And we just don't ever know what's going to happen. And so we, we want something simpler. We want something tighter. We want something more organized that we can control. Is the Christian life not a battle for that every day? You know the reason that we are most tempted to to reject the ways of God and the plan of God is because the plan of God often involves um, an amount of faith and an amount of trust in His ways that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't feel, we can't can't observe, and it just drives us crazy. And so we say, you know what, we're just going to take over and we're going to work our plan and then hopefully God will work all the details out if our plan doesn't work. And God's just saying that is so foolish. I know what I'm doing. I'm the king of the universe. I'm sovereign over all hills and trees and streams. I'm sovereign over all people and lands and nations. I am sovereign over it all. Listen, I want to tell you, when I found out yesterday afternoon that Justice Scalia died, my first response in my heart was not to grieve the death of someone who has served our country for over 30 years, my first response was to get concerned with who Obama is going to appoint next. And you know what that is? That is a lack of trust in the plans of God. So may we not disagree with His plans. This, This next rebellion, sign of rebellion, is a distaste for the purity of God. A distaste for the purity of God. And church, I, I, I just, I first want to be honest. Um, 
as, a, as one of your shepherds here, I don't, sense, I don't sense in our body that we have an ongoing distaste for God's purity. I, I don't see in us a terrible sign of worldliness. As a matter of fact, I just want to tell you that I am encouraged when I'm around you guys. You, you guys, y'all, y'all, y'all build me up in the faith. You don't tear me down. You're a blessing to me. You're not a curse. You're not a burden to me. You're a joy to me. Even kids and adults and men and women, you are a blessing to me. But let, let us not let the truth of this pass us by just because we feel like we're in a, we're in a, in a pretty good place by grace. You and I, oftentimes, because we compare ourselves with the world and we want what the world wants and we see the, the, the glitz nature of the world, we see the shininess of the world, we see the, the, the technology of the world, we see all of these things. We read our Facebook posts and our Twitter feeds and all of this stuff and we're allured by it. And as we're allured by it and we're in awe of it, it produces a lack of awe and a lack of reverence for the holiness of God. And so the more we fixate our minds on the world, the less we fixate our minds and our hearts on God, the more we find God distasteful. The more we find God something that we don't want. And I will say this, church. I would rather be accused of being too holy, too separate, too distinct, and too set apart than for the world to look at us and say, man, they're just like us. They love what we love. They dress like we dress. They have the same priorities as us. They have the same passions as us. They have the same pursuits as us. They just, well, they're just forgiven. No, I'll tell you what, that, that, that does not interest God. What interests God is for Him to have a people who are set apart and distinct, that they are like Him, that they love the things that He loves, they hate the things that He hates, and they are passionate about building His kingdom for His glory. And so, we have a distaste for the purity of God. I'm going to say this one too. A disavowal from the person of God. A disavowal from the person of God. And of course, as we read through the text, you know I get that word disavow from rejection. He said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. This idea of, this is the reality. This is the reality. Okay, I'm, I'm one of the elders of Israel, and I'm coming to Samuel, and I've got all these other elders with me, and we're all together. And while I don't say this with my lips, I don't say it, I don't say it with my words, but I'm essentially saying to Samuel, Samuel, this is, this is the reality. God is great. He's glorious. He's high, He's excellent, He's loving, He's merciful, and He's a Savior. He's delivered us time and time again when we were in trouble. When we were in slavery, He liberated us. When we were hungry, He fed us. When we were up against the water and about to drown, He opened up the waters for us. He has met us time and time and time again, even in the midst of our faithlessness. But right now, in this moment of our lives, Samuel, we want to disavow ourselves from all that He is is and all that He has for us because we want to be more like the world. 
guys, let, let's just uh, let's come to a sober reality. That men, when you choose sexual immorality, you're not just falling into the lust of your flesh. You know what you're doing? You're disavowing yourself from the person of God. Women, when you fall into anxiety over your life and your family and your children and your circumstances, you're not just fretting about things. You are disavowing yourself from the person of God. When you are unwilling to trust the promises and the providence and the provision of God, and you say, I'm going to take the route of this world, you are disavowing yourself from who God is. And that's why we need to press into the areas that hurt most. We need to press into the areas that are, that are most uncomfortable where we can, we can say, you know what, I need to kill my anxiety, I need to kill the lust of my flesh so that I can trust God and I can believe who He is and all that He wants to be for me in my life. What we see, what we see in Israel is a determination to get what we want. And I'd just like for us right now, if you would, just bow your, your heads. Have a time of meditation. I simply want to ask you what I've already exposed. Is there a place in your life where you're discontent with the provision of God? Ask yourself that question right now. Is there any place in your life where you're discontent with the provision of God? Are you disregarding prayers to God? Are you disagreeing with any part of God's plan for your life? Do you have a distaste for God's purity in any way? Like, is, are there parts of your life where you just like them the way that they are, even though they're impure, even though they're even sinful? You like them, and that way you, you just have a distaste for God's purity. Ask yourself this question right now. Is there any part of my life where I'm determined to just get what I want no matter what? In a spirit of prayer and meditation right now, I just want to ask you to just keep your heads and your hearts bowed. Because when I ask the question of this text, how in the world does this text and these truths point me to the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is that God has given us a king. He's given us a king Not like all the nations, but unlike all the nations. And he's even unlike all the Israelite kings that would go uh, beyond this text. God has given us a true king. He is a servant king, a humble king, a gracious king, a holy king. 
And as a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, does fight our battles for us. But they're not the battles against the Philistines. They're not the battles against the Canaanites. They are the battle against sin and Satan and death and hell. And He has gone out before us at Calvary and He has fought the battles for us. He has won those battles that He might on the third day be risen from the dead and we might claim victory over all of our sins. We might claim victory over our discontentment. We might claim victory over our disregard. We might claim victory over our disagreements and distaste and disavowal from God. We can bow before our King and be able to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty with our lips, but in our hearts we love it. We're passionate about it and we want to be like Him because we have a great King. So I want to ask you today that even in the midst of of sin and rebellion and selfishness and all of that stuff, are you able to humble yourself before King Jesus, realizing that God did have a providential, perfect plan for the kingship, which we're going to see in weeks and months to come. Are you bowing before the Son of God, the King of kings, and recognizing that when we're tempted to believe that God doesn't love us and that His plans aren't good for us, that we can look at the cross and see that He loves us because He sent His Son to die for us and to be our King. Phil, will you come up and lead us as we meditate on these truths? Sometimes God gives us what we want to show us that what we want is not what we need. Israel wanted a king. He gave them a king. And in the weeks that are going to unfold, we're going to see that they got this guy named Saul. Man, he looked great. Everything looked promising. But when God gave him a command to go out and destroy all things... For His glory, He didn't destroy all things. He brought some things back. Why? For Saul's own glory. And then, when David, who was this man after God's own heart, who was this anointed king, he is, man, he is handsome, he's ruddy, he's tough, he's got faith in God, but when he gets full of himself, he not only takes daughters for, to be cooks and bakers and all of that, but he takes women who don't belong to him for himself. And then you see people like Ahab. Yeah, do exactly what God predicts. Goes and and takes land and takes vineyards that belong to people who are faithful for Himself. Praise be to God that He knows what He's doing and He raises up a king who does not take but gives. Who does not say, I'm the man, but comes underneath and says, I'm serving for the ultimate God, the ultimate king. Thank God that we have Jesus Christ who rights all the wrongs and reverses the course whom we can love and serve and pledge our allegiance to. As we sing this final song, let's praise God for a King who is glorious. Let's praise God for a King who is loving. Let's praise God for a King who reverses the path that we just saw Israel went down.